0: All right, we have been doing a series called Ignorant, and I read, a, a, I was checking out a book this past week, and the book is called Accidental Genius, and it just looks at these inventions that, they're all around us, and many of them were invented by scientists who didn't even know what they were doing and saw something, and they're like, Wow, that's weird. So the tires, the rubber that makes the tires on your car that you got here on, or your bicycle, whatever it was, that was an accident. A guy was like, hey, that's weird. Now you have tires on your car. Plastic. Everything's made of plastic now. Plastic was an accident. A scientist was like, hey, that's weird. And the book also, it's the book, Viagra was a Oh, that's weird. Yeah, I'm just delivering the message, all right? So if you check out the book, that's in there. But my favorite was this guy named Perry Spencer. And he's a a mad scientist. Uh, 50 years ago or so, he's working on radar equipment, and he would always carry peanuts in his shirt pocket, along with his calculator, I'm sure, and some pens, And he noticed when he cranked this radar way up one day that the peanuts melted in his pocket. Have you ever seen a peanut melt? I have never seen a peanut melt. I don't know what is required to melt a peanut, but it cannot be healthy, right? Also melted his lung, but that's a whole different situation there. Like that's the good old days of science when they're like, safety, this is for mankind. We'll sacrifice ourselves, all right? So he's like, hey, that's weird. So he went and he got an egg. And he put the egg next to the radar equipment and again, and the egg just blew up. He's like, well, that's even weirder. I got an egg on my face, oh no. So he keeps thinking this through and the next day, in a moment of sheer brilliance, he invented the greatest snack, and a way to cook it. He brought in popcorn, and he invented microwavable popcorn. The highest of American cuisine right there. (laughs) Accidental genius. And it kind of reminds me of the series we're in. Like, my goal is for us to think, hey, I haven't seen it that way. That changes my perception and the way that I walk out my faith. And so right now, we've been talking two weeks ago. Dan filled in last week, did a brilliant job. Um, Last week, two weeks ago, we looked at the Old Testament and the very beginning of the work of God's Spirit. And hopefully, that changed some categories for you. It did for me when I saw that. Well, we're going to continue in that same idea, but this time it's not just the Old Testament spirit working in the beginning. There's a movement through the Old Testament that opens up for us a category for Jesus, okay? And this one, I'm not going to be bashful. you got to pay attention. Like, it takes some work to follow this through, but it, was, it transformed the way I read the Gospels and actually the way that I live my life. So it's, it's, the payoff is huge, I hope. It has been for me. But if you look at the New Testament believers, the disciples, the apostles, the people in the book of Acts, the Jewish believers, were they looking for Messiah? Yes, I'll give you the answer. Why were they looking for Messiah? Because they were reading the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is full of these passages that begin to say, hey, there's coming somebody and he's going to look like this, right? So you read the Gospels, very often the Gospels will say, Jesus did this as was predicted by the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Hosea, whatever it is, because they have categories for what Messiah should be. That's what I want, to, I want us to look at and then more specifically what that means for you and me today, Okay? So are you ready? Doesn't matter, because I'm up here, and you showed up, so you must be kind of ready. So we're going to begin 1 Samuel chapter 10. This begins to set a category for what Jesus will be. So this is the first king of Israel. Jesus is the king of Israel, the coming king. So here's the first king. This is chapter 10, verse six. Speaking to Saul, the first king. Then the spirit of Yahweh will rush upon you. Does that remind you of any New Testament chapters? It should, Acts chapter two, right? The Holy Spirit, like a rushing wind, okay? The word spirit here, ruach, can mean breath, Wind or spirit. A rushing ruach will come upon you and you will prophesy, we'll look at that later, with them and, here's the crazy text, be turned into another man. How crazy is that? Saul, first king. Hey, here's what's going to happen to you. First king of Israel. Set up a category. God's ruach is going to rush upon you, and when he rushes upon you, you're going to prophesy, and you're going to be changed into a different kind of person, right? What does that sound like to you? sounds very New Testament-ish to me. Like we will start to like say, well, in the Old Testament, God's Spirit only did this, and the New Testament, God's Spirit does this. I think whenever we set up those kind of categories There's always verses that just break those open to me. So we'll say, well, in the Old Testament, God's spirit empowered the kings but did not indwell the kings. Well, what about this text right here? Somehow God's spirit, when it rushes upon Saul, it changes him into a different kind of person. This is one of those texts that I just grab a cup of tea at 5.30 in the morning and drink it and say, God, what, what are you saying here? And the more that I am... Studying the Bible, and the longer I'm a believer, the more I see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are so tied together because they have one author and one purpose. It's brilliant. All right? So you have this king, and as a king, God's Spirit's going to rush upon him. So let's keep reading. Skip forward. Chapter 16. Something happens to this king. Verse 14. Now the spirit of Yahweh departs from Saul and a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. This is another like, what is being said here? Another very hard text. But here's what happens. Saul, if you read the backstory, disobeys God, does not trust God, doesn't repent to God. And because of that, God's spirit leaves Saul and into the void comes evil. An evil spirit that torments him. Saul is the Old Testament example that our walk with God can never be stagnant. You are either moving forward or you're being drugged backwards. You can't stay still. You're either becoming more holy or you're being drugged back into unholiness. You're either becoming more spiritual or you're becoming more natural. There's no cruise control. There's no standing still. And we should know that because that doesn't exist in the world, right? If you're a guy that's saying, hey, I always pay my bills. I got a credit score of 850. I've been doing this for 20 years, but you know what? I'm just not gonna pay my bills anymore. I'm just gonna stay still. What's gonna happen to you? You won't have a credit score of 850 anymore. Right, You'll go backwards. Or, hey, I've been maintaining my house for 20 years. I am meticulous at it. I trim my grass with a pair of scissors. I love, But you know what? I've been doing this so long, and it looks so good now. I'm good. I'm done. I'm not maintaining my home anymore. What will happen to your home? You'll end up with a toilet in the front lawn, right? You will be that house. Every neighborhood has one. If you're sitting there saying, not my neighborhood. No, not mine. Yes, and it's you. Take the toilet to the dump, please, right? All right, if you're like, hey, I've been working out for a long time, and working out, I've only got a six-pack of abs, I'm good, I'm not working out anymore. What will happen to you? You'll get an ab, singular, like the rest of us. We already know that. Saul is the example of it. You're either gonna be moving forward or you're drugged backwards. That's the way life is, okay? So that happens to Saul. He's anointed by God's spirit, rushes upon him, turns him into a different man. He is disobedient, unbelieving, unrepentant. God's spirit's removed from him. Into the void comes evil. And then verse 13 tells us this. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. So it's like it leaves Saul and ends up on David. And is David... Perfect. No. Here's what you begin to see the anointing of God's Spirit in the Old Testament is no guarantee of faithful service to God. It's the same as it is today. That part of the anointing of God's Spirit requires my trust and my obedience. Saul did not trust, did not obey, and he goes backwards. Have you ever known somebody that was really godly, a man or a woman, who then failed and blew it dramatically? You probably do. You know, Grant's Pass has some categories for that kind of person. Now does that mean everything that he did prior to the fall is no good? No, Saul did some good things. He delivered the people from the Philistines. He did some good things. He prophesied, you know, God's spirit was upon him, but then he blew it and then he's discounted, right? Was David a perfect kind of guy? Not at all, right? He sins much worse than Saul ever sinned in our categories. But here's the difference between Saul and David. David repents. And David continues to work in a trusting, obedience relationship with God. That's what happens. And so God reflects on his trust, his obedience, and his repentance. And God says, you're a man after my own heart. You're a man from my own heart. That yes, you can be anointed by God's spirit, but then it requires in you and me trust, obedience, conviction of sin, and repentance, okay? So finishing this category, thanks Ron. Someone handed that to me on the way up. I want to keep it. Finishing this category, flip forward to chapter seven of 2 Samuel. This is called the Davidic Covenant. This is the big promise God makes to David. Listen to this, verse 13, 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Verse 15, but my steadfast love, Hasid, will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. God compares his chesed, his love, to What? His spirit, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So now, God says to David, because of your trust, because of your obedience, because of your repentance, because of the way that you are before me, your house, your lineage is gonna produce something Brilliant and unbelievable. And that reign will last forever and ever. Now, who is that? What's the category being set up for? Messiah, right? Right? This just gets expanded and expanded and expanded in the mind of a Jewish reader. And I'll try to just give you a couple. So turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah is probably the zenith of this opening of hey, this is the Messiah, this is what to expect of Messiah, who is Jesus. So, Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, how about Isaiah? Go ahead and correct me. Whenever I'm wrong, please correct me. My children have no problem doing that, so you guys get the same benefit. <laughs> They're not in this service, praise God. Or oh, you would have heard them say it right away Dad, it's Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Who's Jesse? David's dad. What it's saying here is, hey, that category that we're opening up with Saul and with David and the spirit anointing somebody, right now the kings because of Babylon and because of sin had been kind of removed, that stump that you think is gone, hey, it's coming back. There's going to come back one who will be anointed by my spirit and if you keep reading this chapter, it's a brilliant thing. There's going to be a brand new creation. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Things are going to be radically different. Like verse 8 says, the nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. How cool is that? Which would mean an appropriate gift to give a newborn is a king cobra. Here, I play with the king cobra. Like that's a different age, right? So this one that's coming, king-like, David-like, Second Samuel seven, anointed, rush of God's spirit. God's is gonna anoint him and it's gonna be a new kind of creation that's brilliant and different and amazing. Okay, keep going. Chapter 42. Told you this gonna be some work, but we'll get to the payoff. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, messianic, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So, this king, like David, lasts forever. His spirit of understanding, wisdom, knowledge can be on him. The spirit is gonna give him a power that he'll bring justice to all the nations. There's gonna be a righteousness, a justice that comes from this figure, right? So it's just expanding and expanding on this category. One more text, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me. How often is that theme right there, right? You see it going all the way back to Saul. King's anointed, David's anointed, anoint, 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 anointed by God's spirit to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Okay. So if you start to look at the file that a Jewish believer would have in AD 30, it's going to be a in the lineage from the house, from the line of David, a king. A king who will bring forth justice and righteousness and peace. A king who has God's anointing spirit resting upon them, empowering them. And he will do what no other king has ever done. He will finally fulfill God's mission to the world. What's God's mission to the world? Genesis 12, verses one through three, to bless all families of earth, to crush the chaos monster that continues to undo the good creation that God has given to us, to bring about righteousness, justice, to finally put sin and death in their place, which is the lake of fire, right? So there's one coming that's going to be able to do this, and he'll preach the good news to the poor, and he'll bind up the captive. And he'll set the, the, the broken heart. He'll bind up the broken heart. He'll set the captive free. Like there's just, it expands, 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 right? So this is the Old Testament file for Messiah. Is it Jesus? Well, let's look. Let's see what the Bible says. Open with me to Luke chapter one, All right? You've got this category now, and I just brushed over it. It's so much thicker in the Old Testament. But it's a, it's, a, it's a David line, it's a king, God's anointing spirit is upon that person. And because of that, he's able to do incredible things, justice, righteousness, preaches, right? All this kind of stuff. So let's look at what Luke says. We're doing Luke on Wednesday. You can join us if you want. We have a meal at 5.30. Uh, we're done at 7.30. It's, it's a great time. So look what Luke says. Luke chapter 1, verse 34. Mary has been told by the angel, hey, you're going to have a baby. Mary says, verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? We have this silly notion that because somebody lived 2,000 years ago, they were stupid. And they didn't understand the basics of biology, right? Right? C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, right? I'll get it later. It's chronological snobbery. Where for some reason, like they didn't understand that babies come from a certain kind of process and people don't come out of graves, right? No, they're very smart. In fact, I think they were better connected to those things than we are today because of technology, they lived it daily. So Mary's like, hey, I took an awkward seventh grade health class I know exactly where babies come from. How's this going to work? Listen to the answer. I mean, I could just do this answer as everything. Listen to what the answer the angel is. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. This is a brilliant passage. If you look at Genesis chapter one, the creation account, what happens? We looked at that. God's spirit hovers over the chaos, and out of that chaos comes a new creation. That's exactly what is being said right here. Hey, Mary, the chaos of humanity, full of bitterness and unrighteousness and unjustness and anger and violence, my spirit is gonna hover over you, and out of that hovering will come a new kind of creation and that new kind of creation is going to be called holy the son of god that's really what it's saying it's brilliant there's a new category being framed and it's going to be done by the spirit okay so moving forward luke 322 when jesus also had been baptized and was praying the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Spirit anointing. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Spirit, Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. These are just the first four chapters of Luke. What is Luke saying here? Hey, this category that we saw with Saul and God's Spirit rushing upon him and David and God's Spirit rushing upon him and Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61. Hey, that's what's happening with Jesus. He's being anointed. The Spirit's resting upon him, Okay? So then look what Jesus does. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Anybody know how long the scroll of Isaiah is? Here's a picture of it. 24 feet long. That is a massive document. Tiny writing. Non-stop writing. No chapter. No verses. Just not, probably Greek. Could be Hebrew. Non-stop writing. Just tons of writing. Page after page after page. Scroll after scroll after scroll. That is a massive task. So Jesus gets handed this scroll, and guess what he does? He starts to look through it. 24 feet to find a passage. Right? How long would that take? Most of us can't find the book of Isaiah. He's finding a tiny little text in a 24-foot scroll. Like I can just imagine people are going, really, dude? Just read anything. Come on, I gotta get home. I don't want to beat the traffic. Stop reading. So, like, like just rolling, looking, 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 looking. Finds it. Verse eighteen. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well-known passage. We read it in Isaiah 61. Jesus searches the whole book of Isaiah to find that particular text, reads it, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. How long did it take to, I mean, was this thing like running out 24 feet? He's like, okay, roll it back up. Like he is in no rush. Then he sits down and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What did he just say? That's me. All those texts, that file for Saul and David and the David Davidic covenant. In Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61. It's me. I will fulfill God's plan to bless all the nations of earth, to crush Satan, to bring in everlasting righteousness and justice. I am the one upon whom the spirit of the Lord is upon. It's me. Okay, Matt, what does this mean? One major thing I want you to get. We'll do the spirit and the believer next week, but here's what you need to get. And this was transformative for me. And it's this question. Once we've read all that, once we've looked at all these passages, let me ask you this question. How did Jesus live his life? How did he do the things that he did? How did he do the miracles that he did? How, when he's sitting at a lunch with Simon the Pharisee. And a prostitute comes and begins to wash his feet with her hair, and he lets her do that, and Simon thinks in his head, oh, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he would never let her do that. And Jesus knows the very thoughts of Simon's head. How does he do that? For years, much of my Christianity, I thought, well, yeah, Jesus, he's a man, but he's God. Right? How hard could it be? He's God, right? Yeah, he's you know, yeah, but he's God, God in the flesh. So here, I really thought about Jesus like this: He's Clark Kent. You guys, know who Clark Kent is, right? Somehow, by glasses, no one can see that he is Superman anymore. But underneath that robe, there's a giant S, and he is still bulletproof, and he's got X-ray vision, right? Superman doesn't cease to be Superman when he puts on the glasses. He's still Superman. I thought, that's what Jesus, you know, he's from heaven with superpowers, and he did everything that he did all by this power of being a superhero. And that's what I thought for a long time. But when you read the Bible, that's not how he's presented. He's presented very differently, in fact. He's presented, read the Gospels. He gets tired, he gets hungry, he gets weary. He has to take a nap in a boat when there's a massive storm. He gets depressed, so depressed that he is suicidal. Jesus, presented in the Bible, is not Clark Kent with glasses on. That's not what he is. I think a better analogy would be Bruce Banner. Who's Bruce Banner? The Hulk, right? He's a normal human until every once in a while what's inside him just kind of blows out and he becomes the Incredible Hulk and then he goes back to being a normal human. I think what you see is at the transfiguration, what's inside of Jesus all of a sudden, boom, comes out in a moment, but then it goes, if you would, away. So this transformed the way I saw Jesus. He is not God doing everything through God's power, he has rather come as a new kind of human that faithfully obeys, trusts the Father as an empowered man by God's Spirit, and what he does and what he accomplishes is through the power of God's Spirit. And that the life that he lived is our example. That the way he lived, when I talk about being a fully spirit-empowered person, I don't go to Acts chapter 2, and I don't go to 1 Corinthians 12. I look at the life of Jesus. The spirit rests upon him. And the way that he lived is the way that you and I are supposed to live. Let me try to prove this now. This is the text for this. It's Philippians chapter 2. It's called the kenosis, and here's why. Verse 6. Though he was informed God, I have that underlined in my Bible. God the Son, 100% God. Not less than God, not different than God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So Jesus, at the incarnation, God the Son, 100% God. Verse 6, in the form of God, at the incarnation, God the Son takes all of his God power, if you would, and he puts it in his back pocket, doesn't cease to be God, but says, I won't use those powers anymore. I'm going to live As a new kind of human, a human on whom the Spirit resides, anoints, empowers, and everything that I do will be through the empowering work of the Spirit. And that's how Jesus lives, right? So he could have turned the rocks into bread because he was hungry, but he said, no, I'm not going to use those powers. He could have called 72,000 angels to rescue him from a beating, but he says, no, I won't use those powers. He could have dissolved the steel of the nails that pinned him to a cross, but he said, no, I'm not going to use those powers. I'm going to do my life as a new category of human that's empowered by God's spirit. Okay, This is what amazed me. I started reading the gospels, not like, oh, Jesus does that because he's a superhero from heaven. And I'm such a miserable, terrible, wicked person, I could never do that. I started reading the gospels saying, Jesus, recreate that kind of human in me. Jesus, make me like that. I wanna be like that, that you are the example. You're the one that trusted perfectly. You're the one that's faithful. You're the one that was empowered by God's Spirit to do these great things, and I want to do those same things. Matt, that sounds arrogant. It's what Jesus says. John 14, 12. Look at this text. It's exactly what Jesus says. He says to his disciples, these guys gathered around, hey, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these will they do. Because I go to the Father. How crazy is that? And so we try to like explain that away. Well, it's greater works because there's more of us. Okay. Still, same works. It has to be more, not less. Like, that is a brilliant promise from God. And I, and I don't want to discount it. Who was Jesus talking to when he said this? Disciples. Let's be honest. They were not the sharpest knives in the drawer, right? At this point, they're arguing about who's the greatest. They're petty, they're vindictive, they're, they're, they're not the best. Over and over, Jesus says, hey, ye of little faith. It becomes their nickname. When they hear little faith, they're like, yeah, what do you want? Right? It's that, that's who they are. And Jesus says, you guys, you guys are going to do greater works than me. Well, Matt, it's because of the resurrection. no. Read Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected, and is about ready to ascend into the heavens to go back to the Father. And right in that moment, Matthew says, hey, we're seeing all this crazy stuff, and some doubted. How crazy is that? Like, well, I got a brother-in-law in Vegas that does that all the time. Just ascends up, I don't know. I don't really believe it. Man, that comforts my heart. Jesus says to that group, not Varsity, you guys. Why? Because my spirit is going to hover over you and create a new kind of human in you. And when you see that happen, Acts chapter 2, that's when they're changed. And the same guys that betrayed Jesus and ran from Jesus and denied Jesus, that same group, they're beaten to a pulp in Acts chapter 5. Because they will not deny Jesus at this point. And they rejoice that they were worthy to be beaten. Like they're going out of the beating, high-fiving each other. Bro, look at my back. What about it? You can see my backbone, praise God. They're crazy. And they transform the world. Why? Because God's spirit, Acts chapter two, hovers over them and creates in them a new kind of human. Like, this changed my life. I read the Gospels and I'm like, I want to be like Jesus. Listen to all these texts. I'm just going to give you a bunch. I have a whole bunch more that say Jesus is our example. He's the one that we look to and we say we want to be like him. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says Jesus is our example. First Corinthians 2.16 says you already have the mind of Christ. It's not, hey, I need to get it. You've already been given it. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You already have his peace. Are you actually letting it have the power in your life that it has? Colossians 3.1 says, just like Jesus was raised from the dead, you have that resurrection power in you. Galatians 3.27 says, to each of us, we've been baptized into Christ, which means we take on his essence, his essence. Spirit if you would, so put on Jesus Christ. Romans 13, verse 14 makes it a command, it's an imperative. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.24, which is a brilliant text, says that there's this new you that's been created. It's a new you created in the likeness of God, a new kind of human that you and I get to live and breathe and become. Read Ephesians 4.25. Twenty-four, twenty-four. It's amazing, and here's maybe my favorite. Compare Galatians three fifteen to Romans sixteen twenty. Galatians three fifteen says this: the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Who's that talking about? You don't have to whisper it. Who's Genesis three fifteen talking about? Jesus. He's gonna crush the serpent. But then Paul writes to the church at Rome after the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he says, the, he says, God will soon crush Satan under your foot. That you and I, if you would, we've taken the baton from Jesus, and now we get to do the same works Jesus did by crushing and defeating Satan. It's, it's been passed on now to us. We get a pushback against darkness. We get it. That the, 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 it's been passed to us. So the more and more I see, as I read the Bible, that God's plan to bless all the families of earth, to crush chaos, to bring in justice and righteousness, that baton, God the Father passes it to God the Son, and God the Son says to his disciples, here you go. You have my spirit. You have my mind. You have my peace, you have my power, you have my anointing. Go, do it, live, trust, obey. And you read the book of Acts, and what you see in the book of Acts is people that more and more look like Jesus. Great power, incredible things. Stephen, the women, the disciples, more and more like Jesus. They live lives that are brilliant. So Matt, what's your point? We need to repent of our low expectations. I think something happens to us where we just don't expect anymore and and I think there's a shadow of theology that actually goes over it, that we're this wicked, terrible, horrible human and maybe one day we'll get to heaven. No way. Jesus says, I've given you all this stuff. Go, live, breathe, be brilliant, live cool, great, incredible lives. But we don't. Somehow we're like crushed by this world. So I read this book quite a while ago, and as a dad to two boys, I've never forgot this statement he makes. It's called Adam's Return. He says, a boy wants to be confronted with greatness. He wants to see something that inspires him. He wants to dream big dreams. And if a boy never sees that, a deep dissatisfaction with life settles into his soul. And instead of dreaming big, that boy will become a cynic. Man, that arrested me. Am I showing my kids greatness? Am I dreaming big dreams? Or is dissatisfaction with life settling in their soul? And you can see it happen. Like, if today you took a bunch of four and five-year-old kids and you went out to a grassy field and you just let those four and five-year-old kids go out and play, would they have a good time? Would you need to entertain them? No, you need to contain them so they don't run into the street. They're just gonna have a great time. Yeah, this is so much fun. All right, now move that up 10 years. A bunch of 14 and 15-year-olds, you take them out to a field. Are they gonna have a good time? No, they're gonna be like, this is so boring. Man, do we have to be here? I hate this place. This place is stupid, right? then take a bunch of 40 and 50-year-old people out to that same field, what will we do? Take a nap. That's exactly what we'll do. <laughs> Praise God for naps. They're godly. Jesus took a nap in a boat. Right? Just something begins to change in us. And we've to recover that almost childlike wonder and faith and belief. Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to be like you. He, he passes the baton on. Greater works she will do. Take the baton, run, live like me. I'm your example. Men like William Carey. I had this little quote written on my desk because he says this. He says, "Expect great things from God, and attempt great things for God." If you don't know who William Carey is, unbelievable man, a shoe, humble shoe repair man in London in 1790. Third grade education. Begins to read the Bible and says, hey, we're supposed to be missionaries. We should be taking this good news everywhere. He becomes the father of modern day missions. He's probably the greatest missionary since the Apostle Paul. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Translates the Bible into 20 languages. Launches what we call modern missions. Why? Because he believed in a big God. Hey, I read about Jesus. Let's go. My problems are not an obstacle to him. Look what he did with David. David. You with Peter. Let's go. I have his mind, I have his peace, I have his power, I have his spirit. Let's go. Let's go. Dream big. Every time I come into this building, it makes me dream big. Like, look around this building. Last year, where were we? Where were we? In hell, let's just put it that way. No, <laughs> it was fine. I mean, it's unbelievable. Dream big. Did you know this? Like, if you were here, the way we raised money was, one Sunday I said, hey, we need a million dollars in one month. Right? That's not how you normally raise money. Well, that statement was taken to a, there was a, there's a group of pastors that got together And someone mentioned it from the front in that pastor's group. Like, hey, Edgewater just asked for a million dollars in one month. They laughed. They laughed. In fact, we were told, oh, that's not how you raise money. You need to do these capital campaigns. You got to get all this like business world stuff in. And I just kept saying, no, big God, big God, trust Jesus. Where's our trust of Jesus? Trust Jesus. That's how I want to live my life. I want to live big God. I want to live big God. I don't want to have those dreams crushed in my soul. Did you know this? This is what, I didn't even mention this. I was just thinking about it. Did you know that FBI just released the the newest, like, safest cities in Oregon? Right, yeah, someone chuckles. Yeah, we know why. Because we are like, the the most, four years ago, we were like the worst city. One of the worst cities in all of the 206 cities of Oregon. Now guess what we are? We're like 25th of the safest cities. What's happened? God. God's spirit. Dream big. Dream big. The life of Jesus is the example of a new kind of human that you and I are to have our lives continually conformed to. When we read the life of Jesus, there should be awoken in you and me this, do that in me. Do that in me. Do that in us. Do that in the body of Christ in grants pass. Bring those things to pass. Dream big. So Father, today forgive me for my low expectations. Forgive me for being satisfied. Forgive me for being content making mud pies when a vacation that the ocean is being offered from you. May we be a people that when we read your life, our own hearts soar and leap, and we say, recreate that in us. Make us after your image. Anoint us with that spirit. Empower us to crush the chaos monster in Josephine County in Grants Pass. Help us to bring righteousness and justice to our own homes, our own communities, our own city. Do that with us, we pray. And I ask this in your name, amen.